0: Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry and today we are going to be talking about the 1941 Preston Sturgis classic Sullivan's Travels. So let's uh, step into Baird Fisher's Video Store to talk about the film. Baird, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, Sam. Thanks.
0: Well, this was uh, yet another film that I had heard of but never seen. Um, I went into this a completely blank slate not only i had heard of it but i had no idea what this was going to be about i mean the title made me obviously think of gulliver's travels but mm-hmm. you know, i didn't that was the only so i i didn't know when this was going to be set where it was going to be set i had never seen a preston sturgis movie i didn't i i i think i knew he wrote comedies and like talky comedies mm-hmm. but that's maybe about all that i knew <laughs> um so uh maybe we could just start off um Kind of what is your history with this film? What's your history with Preston Sturgis? Well,
1: my history with this film is kind of an odd one. Back in in 1991, I was teaching, um, uh, during interim, I was teaching a general education class in the P category on Christian lives. And somehow, I'm not quite sure how, I had stumbled upon a spiritual autobiography by a French author whose whose actual name was Joseph Lemarchand, but he had adopted the pseudonym of Jean Sullivan um, based on Sullivan's Travels. So that was the first I had ever heard. I think it was the first I'd ever heard of um, Sturgis and certainly heard, first I I'd heard of the film. And so I remember one of the reasons I was I uh, adapted the class for interim was because it gave me an opportunity to actually uh, show films and talk about them as part of a three hour class. So that was how I first started. Uh, watching Sullivan's travels as part of this course on Christian spiritual spiritual autobiography. um and and there is there is a quotation from uh, the uh, the book by Sullivan is a spiritual it's kind of like a it's kind of like Pascal's Ponce's it's kind of mm-hmm. a spiritual my journal and uh, it's called morning light and in, in there he says humor should be part of Christian language along with freedom of thought irony a laughter that would slowly break things up adoration that would come as a great blast of wind a language, that would reduce the separation between knowledge and aesthetics, between faith and human acts that would open up to the beyond. So he sees humor as this way of kind of getting at more profound uh, issues.
0: Well, you just blew my mind because I've read Morning Light. I like I I didn't make any of those connections. But oh, yeah, okay. no, I read that uh, at the Oregon Extension. That was a book that I read. So oh, okay. I, the name didn't connect with me. But when you said the name of the book, I'm like, I am familiar with that. text. That's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so, so this was, was this the first Preston Sturges movie you, you'd seen? Yeah. Movie? Yeah.
1: That was my, that, and I think that was that then I, I, I can't remember if I had vaguely heard of Preston Surgis or not. I think I hadn't. I think that was my first uh, time. And then I learned he was, you know, this master of the American, um, I'm not sure I would call it screwball comedy, but there's certainly elements of screwball in what he, in what he does. Um,
0: and really, so when you see screwball that, comedy. What what does that what does that mean?
1: Well, screw. You know, one of the elements of screwball comedy is is often a lot of um, kind of rapid fire uh, dialogue, uh, very clever dialogue. And uh, in fact, um, the nineteen I think it's nineteen thirty nine film, His Girl Friday, with Cary um, Grant, and Russell, is one of the kind of key examples of screwball and. They, one of the characteristics of that film is they take a script that would normally take about 120 minutes, a couple hours to say, and they say it in 90 minutes. Um, so, so very rapid fire exchanges. You get, you get the, probably the, the, the archi- archetypal screwball moment in, in that respect in Sullivan's Travels comes at the beginning, you know, right. when Sullivan is talking to the, to the producers. But then screwball also usually involves um, uh, complicated relationships between the sexes. So my favorite screwball film in that respect is Bringing Up Baby, uh, Cary Grant, Katherine Hepburn, um, and so you see that in this film with the relationship between Sullivan and the girl and Sullivan and the and, and the wife. So I think those are a couple of elements of, of screwball: gender relations and really clever dialogue, and and certainly a, um, a measure of slapstick. And you you get that in Sullivan's Travels as well.
0: And he was. Uh... In the late '30s, early '40s, deeply, deeply prolific. I mean, this was his third movie of, in 1941,
1: right? Yeah, think, yeah well, Lady Eve came out at the same time, and I think The Great McGinty. Um, and in the '30s, he was writing for other people. and Then he first started directing himself in ni- 1940. It was a very, um, it was a very meteoric career. I mean, by 1948, he was done in Hollywood, um, and then he did a couple of films pretty unsuccessfully in, in Europe. Uh, and then I think he died in 1956.
0: Is uh, this yep. your, is this your favorite Preston Sturges movie? You no, know,
1: I would have said this is that's an interesting question, Sam, because I would have said until recently no, but I so thoroughly enjoyed it uh, watching it again. It's probably been a few years, and I just uh, I, it's moving up there. Um, I you know I would have said it was number three. Um, it's probably gotten up to number two now. Um, but, but on the other hand, I, I want to make distinctions, which was, because I think that, um, as a film, Unfaithful of Yours is probably the most sophisticated thing that he's done. Um, and as a comedy, I think Palm Beach Story is the funniest thing he's done. Um, but Selma's Travels is in some ways the most interesting thing he's done. So to me, those are the top three. If you're going to do Sturgis, those are the top three films to watch.
0: And it's interesting in, in, uh. 1997, when AFI put out its 100 American movies list, there was no Preston Sturgis on it. And then in 2007, this was I think number 61 or 65. It was in the 60s. Um, And maybe you don't know what answer this, but what happened in that intervening time where this movie got on the like like rose to that level? Because there's not a lot of movies that that shift. I mean, they shift places, but There's not a a ton of movies that that show up in the second list that are you know older movies.
1: Well, I I I would say in general, um, and you look at those lists. In general, it's hard for comedies to uh, to rank high. I mean, comedies tend to be underrepresented on lists like that. Um, Well, one theory I I I don't actually know, but that won't keep me from speculating. One theory I would have. One theory I would have is that uh, you know since that time the Coen Brothers uh, rose to prominence and and. uh, and the Coen brothers owe a great debt to um, to Sturgis. And I also think that the Sturgis style, which you see in Coen brothers, you see in, um, to a certain extent in uh, Tarantino, um, uh, in, in the fact that those are, they, they all produce really incredibly well-written films. Uh, and I think that that's, that's one of the Sturgis legacies, um, so.
0: Do you remember your? Uh, so, so the the movie opens with a with a dedication page, um, mm. which doesn't always happen in movies. <laughs> um, right. And and it's I'm such a uh, I fall into these traps all the time because I remember when the movie started reading that and thinking that's a really interesting thing to say at the beginning, and then I totally forgot about it, and then I got to the end of the movie and was like oh he kind of told us this at the beginning
1: that's right he did yeah Yeah. um
0: one of the so so um you had mentioned last week when you recommended this that there was gonna be a reason you wanted me to see this in particular and so i kept watching i mean it comes out pretty quick but but as it started i'm like i wonder what the thing is so the first thing that i noticed um which is not the thing you were you were talking about um is that the movie opens with another film,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Uh, the end of another film. And then we cut to realizing that they're watching this in this dark, smoky screening room,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, which is interesting because that is also the way another movie from 1941 opens, Indeed. which is Citizen Kane. Yeah, yes. And yes. you know, and that was the first thing I realized. And I only know that because in, I think, 2011 or 12, uh, for a retirement video, I actually shot a parody of that Citizen Kane scene. So I saw this and I was like, oh, wow, this is, how weird is it? I mean, and obviously, you know, those films are being made at the same time, but like, how weird is it that two movies in that year have that same open, you know, Mm -hmm. in a really, you know, it's very different, but like, but uh, I found that very interesting. And then it, then as they walk out of that room, I felt like, I mean, that's where I realized that not only the direct Coen brothers connection, but I also realized like, oh, I can tell the Coen brothers, must love Preston Sturgis, <laughs> you know, cause it reminds me of things like the Hudsucker proxy mm-hmm, uh, in mm-hmm. terms of the, the way that that dialogue is written in there.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: And then my, my mind exploded when they started to talk about, Oh brother, where are <laughs> the movie he wanted to make? <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. Exactly. Well, that's, uh, you know, the, the Coen brothers have said that uh, their film is the film that Sullivan would have made. Which is really
0: interesting to think right. about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really. Absolutely. Um, so in your mind, is, is this a, a movie that is uh, a, me- a message movie, like a movie that has like this big point it wants to make? Or is it a movie critiquing movies that have a big point it wants to make? Or is it, I mean... Whenever yeah. you ask an either or, it's both. But yeah, that's what I, I found really interesting.
1: Yeah, I think that's what's clever about the movie. Exactly, that it that it, it is indeed both. There's there's lots of um, there's lots of wonderful dialogue about how awful it is to make a movie with a lesson. So you know, one of the, one of the exchanges between um, Sullivan and the producers is he's he says it teaches a moral lesson. It has social significance, and the producer says it gives me the creeps. Uh, and then the girl at one point says there's nothing like a nothing like a deep dish movie to drive you out in the open, right? So, yeah, so there's lots of critiques of movies with messages, but at the same time, this movie obviously does have a message. In fact, the movie ends with an explicit message, right? I mean, the final line of the film tells you this is what the movie is. This is the point of this movie. Um, so, yeah.
0: So I, I have to, to say, one of the things that I listened to after I watched the movie, um, there's a great uh, podcast series called Unspooled, um, where uh, Amy Nicholson, who's a, a film critic, and Paul Shear, who's a comedian, are started a couple of years ago, they're sort of watching their way through the 2007 AFI list. So each yeah. week they take one of these films and they spend about an hour or two um, digging into it. Um, so I listened to that because I, I like those too. And, and I am like, well, here's a chance to like hear some other people talk about this. Um, and one of the points that that they made was that, so this movie comes out in 1940, or excuse me, 1941. In 1940, uh, the you, you know who won Best Director in 1940? Uh, well... I was going to say John Ford but I think that was probably
1: 41. It so was it was
0: no it actually was it was John was Ford it? for The Grapes of it. Wrath. Okay. Which is yeah. also so they were like wow it's interesting Sturgis is also like pointing to I mean cuz in some ways The Grapes of Wrath is like the kind of movie that Sullivan is talking about like oh, yeah. you know, this you know so and even even when we see uh later in the movie the the cover to the book O oh, Brother Where Art Thou uh, and you look at the name of the author. Did you, did you catch the name of the author?
1: Sinclair Beckstein, which right. is probably uh, Sinclair Lewis, Upton Sinclair, and John and, uh, and John Steinbeck. And Steinbeck, yeah. yeah so, yeah, so yeah. there's
0: clearly like, like, like pointing at uh, pointing at some of those things. Um, <laughs>
1: we also know from the film the danger of reading books, uh, because when uh, when when Burrows gives him that long recitation of all the evils of poverty, uh, the valet says he, he gets rather gruesome. Always reading books. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, well, actually, I actually found the two, uh, the the valet and the butler. I don't know exactly what their jobs are, but like that was also an interesting moment, you know, where he is sort of trying on the the costume that he's gonna that he's gonna be wearing, and what I found interesting is from the jump, the project is undercut by and in like undercut in the the way that you're gonna get to at the end of the movie or that Sullivan's gonna get to at the end of the movie. Um. So I actually found those commentaries to be really interesting, and maybe coming from people, you didn't. I, I didn't expect to send that message.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. He says, I, "I think this one is sufficiently seedy, sir." <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. But but even talking about like, um, you know, how do we think about what poverty is, and what does it mean to go like play play poverty, and like like that might not read the way that you think it reads.
1: Oh, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so I, this was a movie that, that constantly kept playing with, um, with my expectations, uh, because like, I would think, okay, now, now the movie's getting started and he goes off on his first adventure. And what's interesting is I feel like there's like, sir, does a bunch of, um, like a bunch of different little movies within this movie. Like there's that, that car chase comes out of nowhere, <laughs> Mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. where he gets in the, the he gets in the car with the thirteen year old kid and and all of a sudden it's like wait what is this what this movie is going to be you know and then and then he has that that little adventure where he stays at that that house for the night mm-hmm. and and when he hops in the truck and I'm like oh I wonder where this is going like where in the wide world is this going to take him and he gets out of the truck and he's in Hollywood again
1: and the, and and that's where the structure of the film uh, goes back to to Gulliver's Travels. Right, because Gulliver Gulliver keeps coming back to England and then he goes on another journey. He comes back to England and I I've lost track as whether Solomon does it four times or not, like Gulliver does, but I think that's that's where the film is structured in that respect by it's kind of got two different structures. It's sort of got the structure of the first two thirds or so, which is the various travels, and then the structure of the of the last third, which is the tragedy part. So it's real a really complicated and interesting structure that he weaves.
0: Uh, is there? Can you talk a little bit about the the speech that he gives? Um, I think it's in the restaurant where he when he first meets the girl, and he's kind of talking about because it's the first time he's unexpectedly pulled back to Hollywood, and he mm-hmm. talks about like the almost like the gravity is pulling him back here right. and stay in your place.
1: Yeah. Well, there's yeah. Actually, there's uh, the gra- the gravity speech actually comes when um, when he's sick. And he's uh, oh yes he's, you're right you're right yeah and and, uh, and he's he's li- he's literally uh, fie- feverish um yeah I, I thought that was I'm glad you pointed that one that one out Sam because I, I like the fact that um here's a guy who is uh, trying to be serious um he's trying to escape levity and he keeps saying that it's gravity that's pull that's that's pulling him back so and it's gravity that keeps pulling him back ultimately to to, to, to levity I mean, it's it's an interesting commentary on. Um, I mean, I, I guess in a way, this could be a little bit depressing, depending on how you look at it, right? It, it could it, it could be depressing in the sense that what he seems to be suggesting is um, it's it's almost a, a medieval world view of the world where you know you you are all you're, you're born into particular social classes and that's simply where you have to you have to stay. Um, I think. Sturgis means it differently. I, I, even though it seems to play out sociologically, um, I think I think Sturgis means it more in terms of, um, I mean, almost what we, as a, from a Christian perspective, I, I would say, is a calling. Um, I mean, like it or not, John L. Sullivan, which is an interesting name, of course. Like it or not, John John L. Sullivan is skilled at making funny funny films, um, and that's that's his his gift and what he needs to do is come to grips with the fact that that's what he's been gifted to do and that's in fact what he should do um so in that sense it's it's not about a kind of permanent social stratification but it's more about uh the individual uh, affirming uh whatever he's called to do of course that could also be an apologia um and it, and it could it could be a defense mechanism for not caring about others, but of course, for him, that does become a way of serving others, because as he says, that's what—that's all some people have.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, I think about, I, when I talk with students about uh, calling, I I've, I've, I often get the opportunity to talk to incoming students, especially incoming transfer students, um, and I always go back to, there's a reading we do in CWC from John Calvin about calling, and Calvin is is really kind of trying to convince people that calling is the thing that's been put in front of you, and you know, so so it's sort of like he and 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 calling's not all not aspirational. It's not here's what I want to do, but calling is what's put in front of you. And this is a guy who's wrestling with that to a certain degree too.
1: Right, and uh, right, and 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 feeling, um, you know, almost feeling guilty about being good at what he's good at, what he, what he's good at, because it doesn't it doesn't have any kind of significance. And I think I think everybody. You know, everybody kind of I think we all sort of struggle with this is you know is what I'm doing actually of any significance does it does it does it really matter um, and I don't think again it's intended as I don't think that Sturgis intends this as a as a large social commentary I don't, you know I don't think I don't think he's saying we shouldn't be concerned about prison reform or we shouldn't be concerned about people who are uh, who are destitute but what he's saying is if you're John L Sullivan the way that you deal with that is not by making films that highlight the problems, because people who have the problems already know they
0: have the problems, which is that's what the, the butler and valet that's, are saying. That's
1: a point you don't need to point this out to them. Um, so so, and and you're not a politician, you're not an economist. I mean, that's not what you do. What you do is bring laughter into the world, and so and, that's what, that's what you need to keep doing because that's what and, you. Do.
0: And what's interesting is, and I'm going back to uh, unspool the the conversation they had was they talk about how there are three moments in this film where you watch Sullivan watching movies. Mm. So the first one, he's in this screening room. He's totally apart from the audience. So he can have this idea of here's what a movie's supposed to be. Here's what, how people should react to it. The second time is when he's you know, on his first adventure and he, <laughs> He kind of hates the people in there. It's all about like how they're not paying attention and how they're noisy and, and, and I mean there's a baby crying, there's a kid blowing out a whistle, there's all this loud eating and 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 it's like he has contempt for the audience almost watching and, that film.
1: And they're watching Tear Jerkers. If you mm-hmm. if you look at the titles and when it comes out, I mean they're are three really serious films.
0: The right, and then, yeah. and then at the and then towards the end at the the labor camp, they have this uh really interesting uh, film experience. Can you talk a little bit about uh, both the build-up to that? I mean, so so that scene doesn't just start with they come in and watch a movie. I mean, it's there's a particular setting, a particular group of hosts in that film, which are very interesting. Yeah, I
1: I, I think that scene is interesting from at least um, at least a couple, of, even maybe three different perspectives. One is I think it's a it's a very interesting contrast to the earlier scene when he and a bunch of the other uh, homeless people are in the uh, chapel service at the at the uh, rescue mission. And it's interesting that there's no dialogue in that in that in that scene, but it's about um,
0: 7 minutes of silent film. Silent
1: film, exactly, but um you get the sense just based on the actions of the preacher that they are getting some fire and brimstone. So 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 that's the immediate contrast, right? That there is a fire and brimstone sermon versus an actual showing of a humorous uh, cartoon. And, of course, this is set in an African-American church. And, you know, it's interesting, Sam, because one of the things that sometimes makes me uncomfortable about Sturgis is he often does have almost the step-and-fetch-it characters, you know, the caricatured African-American. And you get that even a little bit in this film with the cook.
0: I thought Um, of the exact same thing. Yeah.
1: But then you get this really interesting scene where – um, the, the the black church is treated with almost almost too much, res- I, mean, I mean, almost a ridiculous amount of res- respect and solemnity. And in fact, I discovered that Sturgis got a, a letter from the secretary of the NAACP at the time, uh, Walter White, who thanked him for treating the black folks in the film so respectfully and giving them such a dignified uh, um, present- presentation. Uh, so it's interesting that perspective. And then um, the the cartoon they're watching is a uh, called Playful Pluto, from 1934. But what's interesting about that is Sturgis evidently wanted to show a Charlie Chaplin short, um, but Chaplin wouldn't give permission. So
0: well, getting- what's funny about that is in watching this with 21st century eyes, when I saw like the Disney logo come up, I was like my. Without thinking, it was like, man, how did they get the rights to this? <laughs> and it's like, well, because it's it's nineteen forty one, and maybe that wasn't as hard. No, you no, know, I was as blown long. away. Like, wow, how did they? How did they get? You know, because now that would be a much more complicated thing, perhaps too.
1: And I'm sure, and I'm sure that Disney was happy for the exposure because uh, Disney didn't have quite the prominence of Sturgis at that point. So
0: right. So it's yeah. funny that that actually was chosen because of a rights issue because charlie yeah. chaplin wouldn't give the right so that was that that was that was really interesting um so another shock to me was how much happens in this movie so it's an hour and a half it's 90 minutes long and i i watched this during the day between meetings and i had just enough time to get the movie in and i was so i was watching it and i wasn't paying attention to the time and when he gets um, attacked and and pulled into the train car and then he gets out of the, you know, when he gets out of the train and, and, you know, uh, has a concussion, doesn't know what's happening and sort of violently attacks this guy. And then he goes to court. I was thinking how, how much time is left in this movie? And I checked and there was like 25 minutes left and it's like the movie entirely changes. And all of a sudden we're in like this, cool hand Luke style like, yeah. rock camp, yeah. how do we have time for this? <laughs> so that was, that was kind of thrilling because I, it's like, I don't think this is going to be a movie that has this dark of an ending where he just remains in this camp. And, um, but I was also like, I don't, I don't see how he gets out.
1: That, that's funny. You should say that because I, I had been enough years since I had uh, watched it that I, I couldn't remember how he got out. I was like, how, "How does he get out of this?" I can't. I can't quite remember. But, but even the way he gets out is 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 great. It's it's a it's a wonderful twist uh, when he figures that out. But you know, one things you're saying is, I, I think that that again, the characteristic of screwball is, um, even though the film isn't a screwball pace all the way through, you still you, you cram a lot in uh, with with screwball, so it feels like more more than
0: you have got. So that also leads to. Uh... <laughs> And maybe I don't know if this in, is 21st century eyes or how this played in the 1940s, but a pretty complicated view of the justice system and of privilege that he can be like, oh, film directors don't get sent to places like this. And <laughs> and it's just like like there was no it seemed like once they identified who he was, the other attack he had on the, the railway bulls was, was insignificant at that point.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you, actually, I thought about that too. Ex- exactly. Yeah. So he may not have killed John L. Sullivan, but he, he did attack the railroad bull. Um, it's like, we just kind of gloss over, just kind of gloss over that.
0: Yeah. Right. I, I did yeah. love the, and I don't know, I presume is this, if this was real or not, I don't know, but the, the rules of riding the rails that the, the real crime was setting foot in the actual rail yard like the once pressure, you were outside yeah. of it it seemed like they were fine as long as you got off before yeah, it got yeah, there
1: it was just, yeah it was the, the trespassing was, was, was the issue yeah yeah yeah,
0: yeah. and that's so like that, so i also find it interesting how they how they learned about that like the 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 butler and valet calling about the calling the freight yard and trying to like learn the rules of how to do this was very interesting <laughs> that's right yeah.
1: different different method got uh, gets the results
0: so uh, this has obvious uh, Cohen brothers uh, ties what is the uh, what is the most Preston Sturgecy Coen brothers movie
1: um in your good, mind that, that, that's a good question because because you know from Sullivan's travels there are kind of different Coen brothers moments right I mean the the, the you get you get the whip at tank uh, showing up again in in oh brother where art thou um, you get the um, one of my favorite scenes in *The Brother Where Art Thou* is when they're on the uh, in, on the railroad and um, thinks that George Clooney says, "Any of you gentlemen have any smithies or otherwise build in the metallurgical arts?" Um, <laughs> uh, but then the but then the paint the uh, the portrait, you know, and the eyes shifting around that that comes up in *The Lady Killers*. Um, oh, okay. As I as I recall, and there may be a few other direct, maybe a few others, but. Um,
0: I love that they that he went back to that joke a third time because the first time that the second time you saw the picture in my head, I was like, did I misremember what that picture looked like? And then when he does it the third time, it's like, oh, no, no, that's a joke. Yeah, like, exactly.
1: And it's actually a picture of one of the producers. Right.
0: Um, <laughs> Another story that I loved about this movie was um, the, the star of the film, uh, McRae, um, that... Uh, that, uh, Sturgis wrote the part for Joel McCrae. and yeah. McRae's comment was, well, nobody writes parts for me. They write parts for Gary Cooper. And when he won't take them, then I do them. <laughs> but the idea that like Sturgis was like, this is the person that I want. And, and that, that then fostered a relationship between them where he said, like, I would work for nothing for this guy.
1: Yeah. McRae was also, he's also absolutely wonderful in Palm Beach story. And then he's, uh, he's also in, um, uh, one of the serious films I've never seen about the dentist that discovers the use of like laughing gas. I think it's called hmm. the great discovery. I've actually never seen that one.
0: So, uh, before we, we move on, are there other things about this movie that, uh, that you want to want to talk about?
1: Well, I just, I, I um, well, w- w- one of my favorite pieces of dialogue at the beginning of the film is, um, when, uh, Sullivan is trying to convince them that they, uh, that, that he should make the, a serious film, uh, and they're they're talking about the ending of the film they just watched for the symbolism of labor versus versus uh, management. And he says it was held over five weeks in Pittsburgh. What do they know in Pittsburgh? They know what they like. If they knew what they like, they wouldn't live in Pittsburgh. Um, that kind of stuff. <laughs> the other the other thing that's interesting is that um, just as. Um Sturgis's career was meteoric and short and, and uh, brilliant but short. so too is veronica Lakes. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh this is one of Veronica Lake's earlier uh, earliest films. She was only nineteen at the time. Um she was also pregnant at the time as well. um so they had to kind of work around that. Sturgis was furious when he found out she, when she showed up on the set pregnant. Um, she was evidently not a fun actress to work with. Um McRae said he would he, he would never work with her again. Um, and then, probably due to alcoholism and other issues. She sort of uh, descended into obscurity, tried to come back, never quite made it. Um, she was also quite famous for that that peekaboo hairstyle um, that she had, had has at the beginning of the film. But then famously during World War II, she cut it uh, short because she was uh, considered a role a fashion model and it was dangerous for women working factories to have their hair long like that. So, Veronica Lake uh, trimmed her hair. And so, yeah, they made
0: like newsreels about, about yeah. that, of her talking yeah. about yeah. it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And some people say that was sort of the beginning of the end of her popularity because because the way she changed her look. So, the, the other thing I find interesting is this, the, there's the scene where she and Sturgis are, so Sullivan are standing together uh, against the sunset and he puts his arm around her and I'm looking at the height differential. <laughs> so, she was 4'11 and he was 6'2. Um, but McRae after 1946 made exclusively Westerns Uh, and that, and that, that really became his reputation uh, was a, was a a, a Western. He owned ranches. He really was a rancher. Uh, And he also was quite wealthy due to good investments, but great guy married to the same wife for 57 years.
0: And I will say like, that was one of the things I loved is, and this is true for me with a lot of older films. I mean, there can be people who are big stars and I'm not super familiar with them, but it was, it was fun to watch this and like I had no previous relationship with people in this movie. Like it just, it just sort of existed. And and you could have told me these people went on to be huge stars or this was the only thing they ever did. And like, and, and so I, 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 I sort of, I really like that feeling. I like watching films where I don't, where I don't have too much, uh, Baggage or relationship with the people, so this that made this watching very fun too.
1: It's also fun to discover people who were that you knew, at least that I knew, growing up through TV that were actually filmed. So, for example, um, William Demarest, who is in about almost every Sturgis film, uh, shows up later in My Three Sons as Uncle Charlie. You know that 1956. Oh,
0: interesting. Uh, And of course,
1: the other interesting connection to My Three Sons is Fred McMurray, who plays pretty much. Evil characters throughout the nineteen forties, including the, uh, the 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 protagonist in Double Indemnity. You know, he shows up as such a nice guy in My Three Sons. So it's right it's, it's funny to see how many of those forty stars transferred into six fifties and sixties sitcoms.
0: Sure, sure. Shout out to things like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is sort of exactly, about about exactly, some that's exactly of those things. What
1: he's playing with,
0: yeah, right. Uh, so what is our what's our next film? Oh, it's so terribly obvious, Graham. I can tell we, what it was, we, but we, I'm still we, excited.
1: We now have to watch Our Brother Where Art though. Um, absolutely, which I have not seen in a number of years, and probably is is right near the top of my favorite Coen Brothers films. And so we will watch it as the uh, unofficial sequel uh, to
0: Sullivan's Travels. Fantastic! I can't <laughs> wait. Well, thank you, Barrett. This was uh, this was really fun to to uh, talk about. I loved watching this movie. I. I had no idea where it was going. I got real worried when we got into the prison camp and I didn't see, I just didn't see a way out. And I thought I, and and I actually thought there was a distinct possibility that like, maybe Sturgis has, cause I didn't know enough about him to know like, does he have these dark endings where this is just going to be what it is? I was, and I thought, man, is he going to learn to laugh here and then just die in a prison camp? I thought maybe <laughs> that's, maybe that's the way that this movie ends. So it. uh and as I saw the clock ticking towards the end, I thought, I guess that's what it's going to be. So that that whole, everything that happened at the end, I just I just adored this movie. This is one that I will definitely go back to.
1: Actually, I, I should add that that's one of the reasons what you just referred to is one of the reasons why the um, it was not allowed to be used for overseas distribution. Because Hollywood didn't want to send anything abroad that could be used as propaganda against the U.S. And so certainly the depiction of the, of the labor camp was something they didn't want anybody to see.
0: Right, right. Well, thank you, Barrett, for the great conversation. We will catch you next week uh, as we talk about "O oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, until then, we'll see you in the video store.